listeners, and welcome to the 54th episode of the Always Drive podcast, your weekly look at the latest news from the car, truck, and motorcycle industries, where we take everything but ourselves seriously. I'm your host, Devlin Riggs, and it occurred to me this week, why aren't there more pink cars? Driving home from work today, I saw a last-generation Toyota Celica painted in a very beautiful, very bright metal flake pink paint. It was clearly a professional job and looked uh, like a really striking uh, color on the car. And I know this is just a one-off thing, so it, it probably wouldn't have registered as such a blip on my radar if I hadn't just yesterday seen a bright pink painted Porsche Cayenne. Try saying that ten times fast. Um, while the $20,000 Celica was painted with care and precision and craftsmanship, the $80,000 Porsche was rattle-canned by someone with a very shaky hand, and it looked honestly like shit. And everything was paint, pink. Uh, the, the emblems, the badges, the wheels, the valve stems. I was surprised that the brake rotor, rotors weren't also pink, uh, so at least it shows that the painter wasn't a dangerous idiot, just not a tasteful one. Um, but the succession of these cars had me ponder the question, why Why don't we have more pink cars from the factory? Pink is a favorite color of so many people. My colleague Natalie, who's about to depart my workplace for Chicago, is one of them, and almost everything she owns is either pink or black except her Nissan Rogue, which is a boring white. And if you ask her, she'll probably say she chose white because she couldn't pick pink. And it's kind of a shame. To, to get your favorite color on a car, you have to either go quick and dirty like the Porsche or expensive and time-consuming like the Celica. Not to mention the quality of the paint job on the Celica probably cost more than the value of the car itself. And it's not just pink. I mean, we learned last week that yellow cars hold their value better than any other colored vehicle and that picking a safe white, gray, black, or silver doesn't necessarily mean better resale value when you go to sell. And sure, some colors like pink or purple might rule out potential buyers who object to such shades because it doesn't fit their machismo attitude, but they were probably going to lowball you or threaten to beat you up if you didn't come down on the price anyway. We live in a time where you can buy virtually any kind of car you want. You want an SUV, but you really like the look of a coupe, but you still want four doors? BMW and Mercedes have a car for you. You like sedans, but think you want a little more ride height and think a hatchback could help add some utility? Well, BMW and Mercedes still have a car for you. You like compact crossovers, three-row SUVs, and jacked-up wagons that look like they'll go off-road when the most off-roading you do is occasionally park on gravel at the wineries? Almost every car company has a vehicle for you. But you want some outrageous color like pink or green? Well, you're shit out of luck unless you want to take your car somewhere else and have someone paint an already painted car. And maybe it's a little disingenuous to complain about not having everything when we really do, honestly, almost have every conceivable automotive niche covered. But color is such a basic feature. How are we still so constrained? And anyway, that's my rant of the week. Here is your top story. <music> Even
Even if you're not a real automotive enthusiast, you probably heard this week about the incident in Tempe, Arizona, where a pedestrian was killed while crossing the road at night. Uh, this in itself is not rare. Pedestrians die every day, and Arizona actually has the fourth highest pedestrian deaths of any state, so it's unfortunately especially common there. The difference is, uh, this time it was a Volvo XC90 being driven by Uber's autonomous technology that struck and killed the woman, and it has understandably led to new questions about how safe autonomous vehicles actually are. The reality, though, is that safety is only an occasional byproduct of autonomous technology. But safe, safety is absolutely paramount in testing unproven technologies, and it's clear that Uber was not doing their due diligence in this regard. At the time of the accident, the Volvo was being chaperoned by one Uber employee who, according to video of the incident, spent his time looking down either at a phone or at a monitor not paying attention to the road ahead. Jalopnik called around, and pretty much every automaker testing autonomous vehicles uses two in-car minders, one to watch the road and correct any issues with immediate human input to the car, and another to monitor the technology and keep logs of the car's activity. Uber uses only one, so does Waymo, um, and we have to remember that Uber isn't a car company, neither, neither is Waymo, they're an app company, and they're bleeding funds to try to come up with a technology as fast as they can to provide taxi service without having to pay human drivers to operate it. It's not in their best interest to pay to have two people in a car, even if it makes the drive safer. And there are some extenuating factors in this case. It, it was really dark. And the forward-facing camera in the car only shows that uh, just about two seconds before the impact, the woman was very, very difficult to see. But those cameras don't exactly capture the full spectrum of what the human eye can see, and it stands to reason that an alert driver might have seen and been able to react to the woman in time to at least avoid her death. What almost certainly did see the woman, though, were the Velodyne LiDAR arrays on top of the Volvo for which it being dark or night is completely immaterial. Velodyne says that the problem probably wasn't their system seeing the woman, but rather Uber's software interpreting the shape that the LiDAR was seeing as a woman and then acting accordingly, either braking or swerving the car. Instead, the car didn't slow down at all and hit the woman at 40 miles per hour as she walked her bike across the street. And the hardware talking to the software is just one of many ways autonomous vehicles can go wrong. Just like my computer gives me the spinning wheel of death when I try to do too many tasks at once. Machines encounter problems sometimes when they have too many inputs that can render them unstable, unusable, or unresponsive, which becomes a problem when these machines are propelling 4,000-pound death carts down motorways at dangerous speeds. And that's just to mention factors inside the vehicle. Just this week, a representative from the National Center for Atmospheric Research voiced his concern over autonomous vehicles' over-reliance on GPS because the technology is so vulnerable to interruption due to solar flares, which could render vehicles without knowing how to get where they're going. As for the other side of the equation, the truth is that we'll never achieve 100% safety on the roads because humans are both stupid and unpredictable. We don't use crosswalks. We pop out from behind things. We generally do our best to confuse and bewilder technology, like wearing billowy clothing that doesn't make us look like human-shaped, or by carrying bikes that maybe make us look like vehicles. 
Advances in artificial intelligence have computers beating humans in games like chess, Go, and Jeopardy, but there's such a long way to go before it can adequately anticipate what us crazy humans are going to do. So that brings us back to this week, when a woman crossed the road in dark clothing at night and not in a crosswalk, which should not have been a death sentence. And it might not have if Arizona had, hadn't made themselves the absolute wild west of motor vehicle testing, or if Uber had bothered to put a second person in the car like most other automakers do. There's a reason most automakers have their own or use closed private proving grounds and racetracks to test their vehicles in a variety of situations. While it's true that nothing can fully prepare these vehicles for real-life testing uh, scenarios that are difficult to replicate in a closed environment, uh, I would find it hard to believe that they couldn't have tested a woman walking a bike across the road in a proving ground. Since most automakers are testing on roadways with other drivers and pedestrians and no shortage of obstacles, safety certainly isn't the, f the primary concern of automakers in their rush to get autonomous technology into their vehicles. And if you listened to this show before, you probably know what I'm about to say. Autonomous cars are not about enhancing safety and reducing pedestrian or driver deaths. They're about enhancing convenience and making money for both automakers and taxi apps like Uber and Lyft. Autonomous systems are yet another optional add-on for which Tesla, Cadillac, Chevy, Nissan, and others can feel free to charge us thousands of dollars for which we're happy to pay because, honestly, driving in rush hour sucks. The incentive for safety comes not from a sense of duty to improve society, but from a fear of liability when and if something occurs. And now that we're uh, now that something has happened, and the daughter of the woman killed has lawyered up, we're going to see just how accountable these companies are going to be held when safety isn't their first priority. Do you like lists? Well, we've got some lists this week, starting with Consumer Reports, who uh, re reported on the 10 new cars most likely to last longer than 200,000 miles. Uh, this is, of course, not based on any sort of long-term testing, since they're new cars, but rather based on expectations set by old versions of the new cars. As you'd expect, this list is entirely comprised of Hondas and Toyotas, with the sole non-Honda Toyota being the Ford F-150. So, good job, Ford. Another list we got was from Edmunds of their uh, vehicle brands with the most and least loyal buyers. So, did the likelihood that cars will last longer than 200,000 miles correlate with a higher brand loyalty? Uh, yeah, yeah, it definitely did. Uh, Toyota and Honda were first and third, with only Subaru coming between them. Also in the top 10 non-luxury brands were Ram, Chevy, Hyundai, Kia, Nissan, Ford, and Mazda. Jeep just missed out on the top 10, ranking that high probably only due to the popularity of the Wrangler. At the bottom, you guessed it, Dodge, Chrysler, and Fiat. So, remember the first-generation Ford Explorer, the one that had the exploding wilderness AT tires that caused them to flip over and kill people? Well, one of the reasons that story was news was because SUVs were relatively new, and the high center of gravity exacerbated the likelihood of the vehicle flipping in an accident. 
from that Explorer, we got tougher safety rules for tires, for roof rigidity, and for rollover resistance. But what we also got were a whole slew of other SUVs that followed Ford's recipe of building large vehicles primarily for on-road use. It's surprising then that one of the pioneers of the SUV movement has fallen so far behind its competitors as the SUV craze heats up again. Ford's existing Escape, Edge, Explorer, and Expedition are, are fine, but they don't particularly stand out in an increasingly crowded field. So Ford is taking action, and as we've discussed recently, they're coming out with a new Bronco and a new baby Bronco that promise off-road prowess to those seeking it, while ST versions of most vehicles will inject some sportiness where there currently really isn't any. While other brands start to go more upmarket, Ford is looking to expand to performance niches, uh, which should be attractive to enthusiasts like us. But Ford also announced this week that it's entering a three-year partnership with Indian manufacturer Mahindra to develop some small cars, but interestingly, an electric SUV. Apparently, Mahindra will supply the body of the vehicle with the technology that goes inside coming from Ford, who only have a few forays into the electric vehicle realm currently. It's interesting that Ford wouldn't want to use any of their existing platforms for such development, but perhaps Mahindra just has a chassis that caters particularly well to electrification. In any case, these cross-company collaborations are becoming increasingly common as brands look to reduce costs and expand into new markets. So despite not accepting a paycheck for his work at Tesla, the company's board and shareholders have generously decided to force one upon him, uh, assuming he meets specific goals related to the company's value in the stock market. Uh, I'm, of course, talking about Elon Musk. Uh, the company is currently valued at $56 billion, and the bonuses for performance kick in once the company hits $100 billion. If the company becomes one of the highest valued in the world at $650 billion, Musk would earn an incredible $55 billion for himself. As is, he'll have to be content with his paltry $2.6 billion in company stock, which in addition to his existing $20 billion net worth, will probably be enough to keep him warm at night. This comes despite the fact that, yet again, the company is likely going to miss its production targets for Q1 of this year for the Model 3, which still has around 450,000 outstanding orders yet to be filled. Shareholders in the board didn't seem upset by the fact that so many new cars coming off the assembly line have to go directly into reworking facilities because the part quality and fit and finish are so poor. Uh, one news outlet compared him to uh, being the current version of Henry Ford, which was not a good thing. Uh, nor does it bug the shareholders that uh, things are taking so long because much of the cars are being hand-built while the robots that are supposed to be making them are just sort of hanging out in Germany, apparently. Also not phasing them is the fact that Tesla fired 700 employees in October, or the fact that the United Auto Workers Union is getting increasingly aggressive with its activities around the Fremont, California facility. Nope, none of this matters because they say that they see a bigger opportunity for long-term value through energy capture, storage, and use. Uh, well, unfortunately for them, they're not the only company working in each of those areas, and they certainly aren't the company with the best product in any of them yet. And in the interest of full disclosure, I do work for a company that produces energy storage systems similar to Tesla's, 
So I do have an idea of what the competi uh, competition looks like. Um, it was inevitable after we heard about Porsche and Bugatti 3D printing parts for their vehicles to improve performance and reduce cost. It was only a matter of time before we saw an entire car made by a 3D printer. Well, today is that day because Chinese company Polymaker has worked with Italian manufacturer X Electrical Vehicle to produce the LSEV, which is almost entirely 3D printed. Obviously, things like the chassis, tires, and windshield could not be printed for safety or visibility reasons, uh, but that's apparently about it in terms of other parts produced normally. They say that they've been able to reduce the amount of plastic parts in the car from 2,000, which is typical for uh, conventionally produced vehicles, to just 57. Imagine driving a car with just 57 plastic panels on it. Of course, this comes at a cost, which is performance. It has just 93 miles of range and only drives 47 miles per hour, making it mildly more effective than a golf cart, which honestly probably has even fewer plastic panels. And apparently fewer is better? Uh, Nissan announced this week a new initiative called MOVE, which is an acronym for Mobility, Operational Excellence, Value to Customers, and Electrification. Super catchy. Um, and this aims to sell a million electrified vehicles by 2022. Of course, electrified can mean hybrid or plug-in or not necessarily true electric vehicles, so perhaps the goal isn't that ambitious, but another part in the plan is for 20 models to have their autonomous technology integrated. As part of this, they announced that the forthcoming Altima would be the third Nissan vehicle to get their ProPilot autonomous system which is apparently pretty basic so far. And that's probably a good thing, given the, the week the autonomous vehicles have had. Um, fresh off a redesign that has it looking uglier in almost every respect from its previous generation, the Honda Accord now features a hybrid model that uses the company's tried-and-true system of pairing a 143-horsepower four-cylinder with a 181-horsepower electric motor to somehow combine and create only 212 horsepower. Uh, impressively, the trunk space isn't hindered at all by the battery, which probably means there's no spare tire. Uh, also impressive is the fact that the new Accord hybrid costs a whopping four grand less than the outgoing one. The reasons for this to me are many. First, the new hybrid is actually less efficient than the old hybrid, averaging just 47 miles per gallon in the city, which is two fewer than the previous version. Second, just look at it. With its awkward chrome unibrow-looking front end and Volvo knockoff rear and its incomplete styling lines and random chrome, it, it's an ugly car. I used to really like the Accord, but this this changes all that. Also, sedan sales are dropping like a stone, and the Accord, usually a bestseller in this class, is absolutely stagnating on dealer lots. As of the beginning of this month, dealers averaged a 103-day supply of Accords, which are normally so in demand that they can sometimes be hard to find. The problem is so bad that some dealers have canceled orders for new Accords, and others are asking Honda to come up with some ag aggressive or generous incentives for leases just to get them out of their inventories. And it's still not a bad car. It's just it, it's winning a claim for its performance and, and many in many news outlets, but oh, man, just look at it. I suspect many buyers are, and that's probably the reason they're still sitting on dealer lots. 
When production of the Dodge Viper ceased last year, Detroit lost a factory again and gained an empty building again. Uh, but fortunately, Fiat Chrysler have come up with some plans to not just let the structure languish and decay the way so many other factories have in the Motor City. Instead, the building will be remodeled to become a museum for historic Fiat Chrysler vehicles in North America. It will be renamed the Connor Center and become home to 85 of the company's 400 or so historic cars. But for reasons unknown to me, it will not initially be open to the public. If I were Chrysler, and thank God I'm not because I can't stomach another breakdown, uh, I'd be out there every day imploring the public to remember that we once made some cars that some considered historic, basically anything to distract from the current fleet's J.D. Power and Consumer Report scores. When you think of over-designed cars, the first thing that probably comes to mind is the current Honda Civic. It's just vile, and it's ostentatious, look-at-me-boy-racer styling. Uh, but it's far from the only guilty party. The new Lexus style is fairly polarizing, and the Germans have all been guilty of applying 15 feet of styling to a 12-foot car recently as well. But, at least in the latter's case, that's set to change with upcoming models, as both BMW and Mercedes have announced plans to tone down their looks and bring styling back to a simple, understated elegance. Honestly, it's what I like most about German cars throughout history, and part of the reason I bought the GTI. For the price, for the performance, it was the least shouty choice, and the silver paint really made the few styling lines on it pop in a way that I thought was really clean-looking. Whereas with recent Mercedes and BMW vehicles, the intersecting lines have tended to create a design clash instead of a design flow, and new models will emphasize sleekness. Audi has been doing this for years, but their downfall is that in creating this minimalist design, they've minimized the differences in all of their vehicles, making them virtually indistinguishable from one another. As Mercedes head of design Gordon Wagner said, if you like it, take a line off. If you still like it, take another line off. Meanwhile, at Honda, their mantra is something along the lines of, Things didn't go too well for a 17-year-old in Buffalo, Minnesota on Tuesday when she went to take her driver's test. Parked right out front of the exam office, the teen fired up the vehicle, which is apparently the only part of the test she got right, then shifted into drive, stomped on the gas instead of the brake, and launched her Chevy Equinox straight through the front of the office. Fortunately, nobody was inside and the teen wasn't hurt, but the 60-year-old examiner in the car with her had to be hospitalized for non-life-threatening injuries. While no charges will be filed against her for the mistake, I'm pretty sure her classmates will sentence her to life without forgetting what she's done. Last week it was lawnmowers, this week tractors, as Top Gear's Stig set a new Guinness World Record for fastest modified tractor. As a stunt for this week's episode, the bright orange rig with a ridiculous wing on the back hit 87.27 miles per hour after two runs were averaged. For a 5.7 liter, 507 horsepower Chevy V8, that isn't very fast at all, but for the Stig and a tractor with open sides, I bet it felt pretty damn quick. Some say he moonlights as a scarecrow. In other speed-related news, things didn't go as well for Valerie Thompson this week in the World Speed Trials in Australia, 
which takes place on a salt flat that I didn't even know existed outside of Bonneville. Uh, while attempting to break her 304-mile-per-hour record on a custom motorcycle, Valerie's bike experienced trouble, uh, causing the bike to lay down and slide for a mile, shedding bits of itself along the way as it came to a stop and leaving a bright red stripe across Australia. Fortunately, Valerie is okay, and she did manage to hit 328 miles per hour before the problem started. The bike, however, needs some serious work. Experiencing technical difficulties is never fun, but I can't imagine a more pants-shitting moment than technical difficulties occurring above 300 miles an hour and on two wheels. Uh, McLaren may not have had much luck with Formula One last year since they used Honda's shitty, underpowered, unreliable motors, but they haven't lost their sense of humor uh, since now all Formula One vehicles will be fitted with the so-called halo to prevent drivers' heads being taken off by flying debris or, indeed, flying other vehicles. Uh, that means that there's a new hashtag branding opportunity for companies constantly looking for a way to make the most expensive motorsport cheaper. Um, some have accurately noticed that the halo devices looks less like a halo and more like the straps of a flip-flop or, if you live in Australia... Thongs. So, who better to sponsor the Halo than a flip-flop company? McLaren has brought on Gandhi's, a British lifestyle brand who are fittingly launching a McLaren-inspired flip-flop called the Halo Edition, from which 100% of profits will go to the company's charity that benefits orphans in Sri Lanka. So, while we'll wait to see if this season has a happier ending for McLaren, we should all go out and buy some F1 flip-flops and give some orphans happy endings a little sooner. And not, like, creepy happy endings. Shut up. Uh, if you're familiar with Rodrigo Duterte, uh, this next story probably isn't going to seem too crazy by his standards. After all, he operates death squads that have killed a documented 1,400 drug dealers, petty criminals, and homeless people, even sometimes children. Um, but he is a president of the Philippines, where he rules with an iron fist and a squadron of bulldozers. And in this case, I do mean literal bulldozers, which he used this week to crush 14 vehicles worth about $525,000 that were illegally imported into the country. These cars included Mercedes, Porsches, and Maseratis, and the show was broadcast for the entire country to see, apparently as confirmation of Duterte's commitment to building a country free from the shackles of corruption. There's more work to do, as apparently there are almost a thousand other smuggled vehicles on the docket for destruction. As much as I don't want to see Lamborghinis, Aston Martins, and others impounded and then crushed in a reality show kind of way, I suppose it's worth it if it takes Duterte's mind off killing the children of drug addicts. A Wisconsin man was apparently out to prove the unsuitability of the Dodge Challenger Hellcat um, for public roads, uh, because he was arrested for driving 140 miles per hour on an Indiana toll road. And if you're thinking, how the hell did cops catch a 707-horsepower horse, muscle car? Well, it's not because he crashed. It's because he got caught behind everyone's favorite rolling roadblock, two semis driving side-by-side side without passing one another. This may have been the only occasion that that happening was actually a good thing. When asked for an explanation why he was driving at twice the speed limit on an interstate, the driver just said he was trying to get to Maryland. 
because there can't possibly be faster ways to get there than by endangering hundreds of people on public roads with a drag race car and shitty suspension. Anyway, uh, here are some new cars. Brand new, brand new, brand new. I don't like it unless brand new. you might see me in my whip with my if you're shopping for a car right now, chances are you're looking at SUVs and crossovers because that's pretty much the only kind of vehicle anyone wants anymore. If you happen to be filthy rich, not care about brand heritage, not care about performance, and are shot at quite often, well, there's good news. It's called the Carlman King, and it's a Chinese-designed vehicle built in Europe, which flips the script on how most companies are making cars these days. It looks like an F-117 stealth fighter and is powered by a 6.8-liter V10 from the Ford F-550. If you want the bulletproof model, though, you're looking at a car weighing 13,227 pounds. And for reference, cars generally weigh between three and 4,000 pounds, so obviously performance isn't going to be great. But how not great are we talking? Despite the 400 horsepower, it'll only hit a top speed of 87. So, since it's not a car designed to be ridden in, uh, not driven, it has a coffee machine, a flat-screen TV, refrigerator, PlayStation 4, and various other pimp-my-ride-style accoutrements. Uh, but you probably won't care how slow you're going, since you'll be playing Far Cry 5 before it comes out. Um, if you're filthy rich and do care about brand heritage, don't like driving, but don't get shot at very often, there's uh, also good news because the new McLaren, or excuse me, Mercedes Maybach Pullman S650 has been announced. Basically, this is the $615,000 limousine edition of the Mercedes Maybach, Maybach S650, which means it seats six and features a glass partition between you and the driver. That means he can't hear you make fun of the poors like him, which should help avoid the development of simple resentment into a seething hatred, reducing the likelihood that you will be killed in a fit of rage by someone you hired to drive you around. In less fancy news, but still pretty fancy, Volkswagen unveiled the new Touareg this week in China. Um, the premium SUV is hugely popular there, and in Russia and Europe, but sales just fell off a cliff here in the States after Dieselgate. When it was removed from the market, VW officially claimed that it didn't make much sense for them to sell such a premium SUV since their brand is more of the people's car. It, literally the people's car. But here again, they had come with the clone of the Porsche Cayenne, which it is co-developed with, but slightly cheaper. In truth, most of Volkswagen cars have a very premium feel to them despite their relative inexpense, which is welcome, especially as luxury cars are selling way more these days. And VW is sticking to what it knows, and to cost efficiencies in keeping the Touareg a higher-class vehicle than the Tiguan or Atlas. That said, we don't know if we'll get it here in the States yet, but the way SUV sales are going, they might as well try, because even if it lacks a third-row or hybrid option, chances are it'll still sell. Back when we learned that uh, Cadillac was trimming the CTS and ATS in favor of something in between called the CT6, uh, I wasn't too surprised since sedans' uh, sales are in the toilet circling the drain, uh, but I am a bit surprised to learn that Caddy isn't going to just phone it in on the new car because they announced this week the V-Sport trim package that very much keeps alive the crazy fun factor of the ATSV and CTSV. Not only does the V-Sport have a 4.2-liter V8, it also has two turbochargers, 
spooling up 550 horsepower and a tire-shredding 627 pound-feet of torque. The turbos actually sit inside the crease of the 90-degree V-shaped engine. And for reference, most V engines are 60-degree Vs, so uh, it just makes for a pretty compact, neat package. No performance figures have yet been released, but I'm willing to bet that regardless of 0-60 to 60 time, it'll be quick and loud enough to put a smile on your face. Uh, if you've been listening to the show for a while, you probably know that I'm not really into the whole mudding or off-road scene uh, that much. Uh, not because I'm not interested in it, but rather I've never really had the opportunity. My neighbors do it, and they'd love it, and, and I'm a fan of old Wranglers and, and Forerunners, so I'd, I'd probably really enjoy it too, uh, but you know who really enjoys it? Fiat Chrysler, because Jeep makes a killing off of that scene, and they absolutely know how to get to their buyers. This week is the annual Easter meet in Moab, Utah, where all the hardcore off-road types go, and Jeep is bringing seven concepts of different vehicles to the event. While most are Wrangler-based, there is a really neat Resto-Mod vintage-style Wagoneer, as well as a really not-so-neat Renegade concept that basically just lifts the suspension an inch and a half. Uh, the Wrangler models all have their own unique brand of flavoring uh, and showcase what a blank canvas Jeep's most iconic model is, and just how flexible the new JL platform can be for owners. Fiat Chrysler, they... They have a tendency to not do much right, but it's clear that they really get Jeep, which is probably why they don't want to sell it, even though it's the single most valuable brand in their stable. Uh, speaking of fun cars you can't buy, Volkswagen has one of those. It's the IDR Pikes Peak, which is an electric vehicle race car built specifically for uh, Pikes Peak. Uh, it will compete in the hill climb on June 24th and is aiming to take Reese Millen's record of 8 minutes and 57 seconds and throw it out the window. Uh, we don't have any sort of performance figures or power specs, but it certainly looks like a super sleek race car. And they're expecting uh, it to go after the electric vehicle record, so you know it's going to be fast. And good for them. I mean, the more interest they can build in electric vehicles the more consumers will trust and consider the road-going models. Or, at least that's the theory. Uh, gone is Scion, and with it their uppercase-lowercase naming convention, so the Toyota IM has been redesigned and relaunched as the Corolla hatchback. The changes are apparently welcome because the IM was a real piece of shit, according to the reviews I've read. Uh, I drove an old Toyota Matrix up in Canada, and I really enjoyed it more than I thought I would, but that was probably... 13 years ago, and I guess the IM hadn't really come very far since then, so the new Corolla hatch features many changes. Uh, the chassis is more rigid, it's longer, wider, and lower, and is uh, uh, going out as the ancient 1.8-liter four-banger and, and coming in as a new 2.0-liter model. Uh, the interior has also been completely redesigned to have supportive seats and functional armrests, which was apparently a problem with the IM as well. Not to mention, it, it really looks quite good, especially in this sort of light blue color in which it's been shown. I don't think it'll kick my GTI out of the garage just yet, but I'm sure it'll be a compact, reliable, competent little car. And that's where we're going to leave it this week. Um, coming up next week, I have some friends coming into the studio to talk about uh, some of their recent road trips and uh, the joys of motoring, or sometimes not-so-joyful motoring. Um, uh, so for this week's call to action, go out and hang out with some friends. I know that's, uh, not 
too big an ask of anybody, but uh, I think socialization is important, and uh, I haven't been doing it a whole lot recently, so it'll be good for me to catch up with some people. Um, thank you for listening, and thanks to Nicholas Falcon for our intro song. This week, uh, in light of the news of the V-Sport Cadillac coming back, I think we should take a look back at what made the old Cadillac CTS-V so special. Here, friends, is your moment of zen. Uh-huh.